0: Welcome back to Money and Meaning: Stories of Unlocking the Potential of Capital Markets for Impact. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. On this episode, you'll hear from Anthony Bug Levine, the CEO of the Nonprofit Finance Fund. Founded in 1980, NFF is a community development finance institution, or a CDFI with over $350 million of investment capital that provides financing and consulting to nonprofits across the country. Antony recently helped launch a $75 million COVID-19 response fund. Partially funded by a Ford Foundation program related investment and administered by the NFF, the fund aims to support New York City nonprofits most impacted by the recent pandemic. Prior to his work at NFF, Antony was a managing director at the Rockefeller Foundation where he led the foundation's impact investing initiative. He's also the founding board chair of the Global Impact Investing Network, or GIN. Our conversation span the history and the evolution of the field of impact investing, from a revolving loan fund created in Benjamin Franklin's will, to the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, through the meeting in 2007 where the phrase impact investing was coined. We also talk about the direct line between the civil rights movement and the modern field of impact investing. Let's jump into the conversation. Anthony, welcome to the show. Great. Thanks so much. It's really great to be on. I appreciate it. So, we're we're going to get to your work with the the nonprofit finance fund in a minute, but um since I have you on the show, you're you're something of a historian in this field. You uh you you convened the meeting that that coined the phrase impact investing. You helped launch the the Global Impact Investing Network. You you co-wrote the book on impact investing with Jed Emerson, who we had on the show a couple months ago. Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about the history and the, the evolution of the field, um, and maybe we could start with your personal impact investing journey. When did you when did you realize the power of capital markets to solve social and environmental problems?
1: Sure, I mean it's a, it's a great question. I think it's really important, and I hope many of your listeners know that. The phrase impact investing we created in 2007, the practice of impact investing is centuries old, if not older. Almost every major culture of the world has some aspect of their collective memory that recognizes that investments should not simply be made to enrich the investor, but should actually be part of a broader way in which the resources of a community are used to support that community. In the United States, I, I talk about the fact that Benjamin Franklin and his will uh, left a revolving loan fund that we would call an impact investing fund in order to help uh, young people who were starting up in effectively small businesses to buy guild licenses that allowed them to come out from being effectively indentured servants to business owners and start their own business. Uh, he did that not through a grant program, but through a loan fund, uh, which certainly is an impact investment. In England, the Rothschild family in the early 19th century set up what was called the 3% scheme. a Effectively, we would call it a low-income housing fund that whose purpose was to create affordable housing for workers in London, that would enable the investors to get a 3% return, capped at 3% in order to keep the homes affordable for the working class. And again, the motivation was to solve a social problem. In that case, the, the slum conditions that many people were forced to live in and doing it not just through philanthropy, but through investment. So you know, impact investing as a concept is is quite old, but I have to tell you, when I came up through college in the mid-90s, I definitely didn't see that way of integrating investments and uh, purpose. I was much more typical of someone that in, in my book with Jed, we refer to as is living in the bifurcated world, which is just a fancy Latin term for split in two. And in the bifurcated world, which I certainly come from, I was someone who thought I would pursue a life of purpose through policy, politics. I studied political science. I was interested in, in law and human rights. And saw those people who set out to make money as investors or bankers as inherently evil or the man. And I think (laughs) not atypically for the time, I was someone who thought that, you know, in that bifurcated worldview, if you wanted to have a life of purpose, you did it through nonprofit or government. And if you went into business, you did it in order to enrich yourself. And that was selfish. And so. I came up through that worldview. I went back to South Africa where I had um, grown up um, after college and ended up working in the Human Rights Commission there. Uh, and one of the turning points was an experience we had at the commission where we were asked to investigate a, a set of um, human rights violations in northern South African, near the Zimbabwean border where white, and this was in the late 1990s, five years after apartheid officially ended. And on paper, the people living in that community and in the rest of the country were the freest people the world had ever known. We had the most progressive constitution that was um, approved in 1996, which secured everyone their rights on paper. But the reality of the of people living in this community, the black people living in that community, was that the white people owned the land. They owned the stores. They owned the factories. They controlled the ability of anyone to make a living or, or to be able to live, frankly, materially. Um, And it turned out that one of the ways they manifested that power was through incredibly oppressive human rights abuses that were going on in that community. And that really taught me that experience that even though people had won their freedom on paper and through politics, you couldn't realize that freedom if you didn't have control of the economy and of financial resources. And so I came to recognizing the need to understand the way that investing worked, not because I loved investing, but because I just recognized that whatever your ideology view was about capitalism and business, um, you had to know how they worked in our time in order to be effective. If your real goal was to ultimately solve social problems, and so from that experience, and then I had a, a set of other experiences, um, I ended up at the Rockefeller Foundation in 2007, um, not hired to work on impact investing, but you know hired to be a generalist who could figure out ways to pursue the mission of the foundation, and. What I often say is if the mission of a philanthropic effort is to address a social issue in one community, whether it's get a village in Ghana to clean water by putting in wells or you know take a small community in the U.S. and make sure everyone has decent education outcomes, you can get there with philanthropy alone because there is enough money in donor world. Um, but the goal of the Rockefeller Foundation was to do things like end all poverty or have everyone in the world have access to health care. And it's just, again, it's not an ideological view that says somehow capitalism is better. It's just the reality that There's never going to be enough money in philanthropy alone to solve problems at scale. And at the same time, there is this incredible asset out there, which is the wealth in the capital markets, you know, depending how you look at it, $100 trillion, $200 trillion. But there certainly is enough money to make a difference. The problem is that that money is not being put to work in the way it could be for social purpose. It's often just pursuing profit for the sake of profit and not being put to work. And unleashed in its own potential. And so the, the, the premise of our work at the Rock Foundation and why we launched the Global Impact Investing Network and the work on impact investing was that there was this huge set of resources, both the financial resources and the capital markets, as well as the, the talent that exists in the investing world that could be harnessed to solving social problems and has to be harnessed to solving social problems if we are serious about solving them at scale.
0: Are there certain challenges that are more conducive to for-profit versus nonprofit versus public sector?
1: That's a great question. And one thing I really hope most impact investors understand is that we can only be effective to the extent we understand how to work in complement to the private sector and to the government and foundations. I think one of the dangers in impact investing are people who see in impact investing a way to solve social problems that gets around the need to engage with the political process. And so I think you're absolutely right to frame it that way. There's ways in which we as impact investors can make a difference. There's some areas in which we can be more a clear part of the solution. There are other areas in which we really need just be complementing government. And then there's some areas where frankly government and philanthropy have to act specifically themselves. You know, to answer your question, I think we just go back to the simple premise of what an investment does. I mean investment basically provides resources to organizations, whether they're for profit or not profit, in order for them to Organize a set of activity that ultimately produces revenue and hopefully margins. And with those margins, you pay back your investor. And so anywhere where a business or nonprofit can provide a service that is of higher quality and at lower cost than the alternative that also supports people to, you know, uplift themselves, you can make an impact investment. I'd say, you know, that's theoretical. In there's certainly areas, you know, housing is a very important part. In the US, it's been the largest part of where impact investing money has gone. Housing has that trait where you need to make an upfront investment. When you do, then over time, it will be paid back by either the government through vouchers or through your the person who lives there, a renter or or an owner. That's a perfect example where, where investment capital can make a huge difference because organizations need the money upfront. They put up that housing and then they create business models that allow them to have people who can afford, you know, affordable housing and sort of have a better option to live in a in a better and safer and healthier place, uh, at payback over time. The other reason why housing has been a big part of the impact investing story is because it's capital intensive. So, you know, you need, depending on what country you're in, ten thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars in some cities in the U.S., three hundred thousand dollars to put up a unit of housing for a family. You multiply that by thousands and thousands, and you get to the point where you can't do it with philanthropy alone. The impact investing and movement in the U.S. was really started in one form in the late 1960s by the Ford Foundation, whose first, they were the first foundation to make what we now call program-related investments. That was really created out of an awareness that their ambitions to support the improvement of housing and the availability of of decent housing for everyone in America simply required them to mobilize mortgage markets because there wasn't enough money in philanthropy. So, yeah, I think in housing has clearly been an important place. Healthcare is another place where, um, especially people who live in marginalized communities or in poor countries are often paying more than richer people do for worse services. And so, again, there's that whole area where poor people and people living in marginal communities pay more for lower quality services. That's a great place where an investor can go and support a company or a nonprofit, deliver that service in a way that provides better services at a lower cost and profit, um, and again, can be capitalized. Education, where it is not adequately provided by the public sector. Uh, is another place in where, again, you've got the phenomenon of needing upfront capital to get something good going, and then reliable revenue at the back end from tuition payments. You know, again, I believe we should live in a world in which every child has the moral right to a decent education without, without having to pay for it. Uh, that's not the world we live in. And in the meantime, in a lot of places, government is not doing the job they should do. And so the alternative for people to send their kids to impact investing backed, high quality, affordable private schools are either higher cost schools that they can't afford or very low quality schools. And so anytime you can provide a better product at a lower price, you can really make a huge social contribution. And if you get your business model right, repay your investors.
0: You mentioned the uh, when Ford Foundation started doing program related investments. Did that did that come out of the Community Reinvestment Act? That that was around the same time, right?
1: Yeah, it was actually it preceded that. So Ford in 1969 was able to advocate in Congress for a change to the Tax Act relating to foundations that made legally clear this idea of a program-related investment with a capital PRI. So it's been since 1969 that um, other foundations and Ford as well have been able to to operate with, in this case, investments whose purpose is to produce a programmatic outcome or a social good. But the change in the law also recognized they were allowed to make money as well. Prior to that, in order to qualify your capital allocation as part of your charitable purpose, you had to make it a grant. After 1969, you were able to make it as an investment. The Community Reinvestment Act that you mentioned um, was passed in 1977. um, And that was the law that mandates that all banks in the United States who want to be in good standing with their regulator to make money in the markets they choose have to, in addition. Prove every three years that they are making loans available in initially primarily focused on urban African American neighborhoods. And what's really important about the CRA Act and it goes back to your earlier question about the role of politics, impact investing, and how we work together is this the CRA is really what juiced the impact investing movement in America. Before we had the phrase impact investing for 30 years later, um, CRA led the bankers to now had to prove they were making loans available in these communities. Rather than doing that directly, they realized that it would be effective to help start what's now called the community finance industry by rather than lending directly to these small business owners and mortgage holders in these communities. Instead, they lend to the balance sheet of a set of intermediaries. We're called community finance institutions. And then when we make loans, so I borrow at NFF, we borrow from all the big banks, most of them. When we make loans to the kind of groups we lend to in those communities, the banks get credit with a regulator for making their capital available. And that has now spurred an industry that has about 1,200, probably going to sadly shrink in the next few months because of the the economic crisis, but around 1,200 certified community finance institutions now in the US. The, The important point about the 1977 CRA Act is it really was one of the last great legislative victories of the civil rights movement. So those of you who know your US history will know that in the early 60s, culminating in the mid-60s, were the, were the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Um, and they were the recognition that the government had to make sure that African Americans were given the, the rights owed to them on the, by the Constitution when it comes to, to voting and, and other aspects of life. In the early 70s, there was a realization that despite the victories on the political rights, the banks were continuing to perpetuate a system of withholding loan capital from African-American entrepreneurs, homeowners and neighborhoods. And so it was that same coalition and the same motivation that had led to the civil rights victories in the 60s uh, that culminated in the 1977 CRA Act, Community Reinvestment Act, that basically said we have to address the way in which money, investment money is structurally withheld from black communities. And that was going to require a law. And so when you think back to today and what this country is is going through now with an, an uprising, premised on the recognition that so much of the civil rights movement is incomplete. And so my, we have so much more work to do to realize the promise that is in our constitution that came out of the civil rights movement. I think it's really timely for us as impact investors in the United States to recognize that we do our work as part of a legacy of the civil rights movement. As someone who runs a community finance institution, I am very aware of the fact that I am in an industry that exists because of a very specific moral call and the sacrifices made by people politically to get that law passed. And it wasn't about generally unlocking capital for good the way we sometimes abstract this in the impact investing industry. It was very specifically about shifting the way that investments are made in the United States to remove one of the shameful pillars of our structurally racist system, which was the way investment capital flowed. And so I call on all impact investors, and we certainly try to do this in our work, to ask ourselves, what would we do differently today if we sought to honor the legacy of where we come from as part of a very specific analysis around structural racism that came out of the civil rights movement, I think it's very important for impact investing to recognize that that is where we were born in the U.S. and that we have an obligation to honor that history.
0: That's great. I didn't realize there was a a direct line between the the civil rights movement and and the field of impact investing. So I appreciate you, you diving into that. Take me back to that that meeting in two thousand and seven, where the term impact investing" was coined. what What was the conversation like at at that point? And who were the major players who are who are working in this this field?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I was at the Rockefeller foundation. and and, you know, it, it really comes down to, as I said, the realization that was both simple and turned out to be quite profound, which was that for a foundation whose goal was to solve global problems, that we simply could not do that with philanthropy alone. And so, I didn't think it was a blinding insight. I just thought it was kind of obvious. I'd never been a foundation. I showed up three months later. I thought, well, I hear you guys talking about getting everyone a decent home in the world and I can run the... I literally wrote on the back of an envelope. It wasn't a napkin. It was an envelope. (laughs) Literally an envelope. Um, Here's how many hundreds of billions it's going to cost to get everyone a home. Here's how many hundreds of billions it's going to cost to get everyone decent water connections. There's 2 billion people in the world that don't have decent sanitation. We can put a number on that. When you add that up, it's just as bigger than philanthropy, but it's smaller than the money in the capital markets. And so we started initiative at Rockefeller Foundation to say, well, what would it take to get the capital markets engaged? And so who we brought together at that meeting in 2007 were quite intentionally a combination of mainstream asset managers, at least people representing the mainstream asset management firms, along with some of the very wealthy family offices um, who had the ability to have greater agency and autonomy to make the kinds of investments they want to make and not be as worried about the regulators. But we very intentionally into that meeting brought the kinds of people who don't typically go to foundation conferences about solving the world's problems. They were some of the big European banks, some people representing big asset management firms in the US. Um, Again, there were a handful of very high net worth individuals who had recognized for their own purposes and their own families that they wanted to be working in this way. And the question we asked posed to them wasn't, how will you make more impact investments? It was, what could we do collectively to create an industry that would enable you and many other people to have your investments be made for social purpose as well as profit, and so that was the the premise of the meeting. And and you know that was the meeting where we we went into the meeting, referring this to this as many other people did as social impact investing. Um, social investing is very old, as I said earlier. This this isn't new. We didn't invent the practice. Many people that come out of the negative screening kind of what we now call ESG movement. A few of them were there. Um, others had been making investments in affordable housing, or in many cases in green issues for quite a while uh, what we did at the meeting though was ask the group do you guys recognize that you are part of something bigger i think a lot of people went into the meeting saying i'm an affordable housing investor i'm a green investor i'm a education investor and, and what we argued in the meeting was that actually we all were all part of something bigger together and that was stepping back from the specific way we invested a broader point of view we had that for-profit investments are a morally appropriate and economically effective way to address social problems and if that's true there was value in us coming together and really trying to build the infrastructure of what would be an industry and so um, that's where we decided that you know dropping the social for what it's worth seemed to have helped rhetorically create some traction around this this concept um, but more importantly we looked at what what would it take to create an industry that could really thrive and that would enable many more other people to bring their capital to the market? And those are the pieces we've now put in place. And, you know, not to uh, blow smoke, but certainly SOCAP has been one part of the answer to the question of what would it take to create an industry An industry needs a place to convene and and have ideas and, and networking accelerated. And there are many um, other elements as well. It's also the meeting after which the Global Impact Investment Network was formed um, because the investors at that meeting felt that there was going to be utility and having a network that was focused on the investors themselves being able to get together and learn from each other, rather than the places we typically used to go to where a lot of people were pitching us for, you know, wanting investments or, or consultants trying to, you know, hustle us for work. And then there was a sense that as you know, we could work together more effectively if we had a network focused on the investors themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. You you mentioned the ultra high net worths and and big banks and, and big foundations, but it seems like you know, part of the impetus recently has been around democratizing impact investing and, and and just making people aware of the impact that their investments have. It seems like that's become a focal point of of the movement. Has that evolved over the last 13 years from that that original conversation?
1: Yeah, I mean, there were certainly people from the beginning who felt that if we didn't make this around the question of how do you get products that enable retail investors with $10, $20, $30, to participate, then ultimately this was going to be elitist and technocratic and in some ways replicate uh, the same inequities and concentrations of power that the movement was trying to upend. So I'd say from the beginning, and I remember there was at least one person at that meeting who said, there were a few people at the meeting who said, this is about democratizing this idea. Um, To be totally honest, personally, I was not as supportive of that point of view as I should have been, I now recognize, because my view was much more focused narrowly on where do we go in the next decade to get as much money as quickly as we can to capitalize these incredible companies and nonprofits to prove that you can actually put your money to work and make a difference and make a profit. And if that was your goal, then trying to mobilize retail assets is a distraction because it's a lot easier to go to the next billionaire and get a $20 million commitment than it is to mobilize a million people to make a $20 investment. And so I think what it really what that tension reflected which was in that first meeting I think has continued to be part of the movement is this question of what is impact investing really about and when we coined the phrase impact investing one of the reasons we chose it was very intentionally at that meeting we wanted to capture what was going on with two fundamental camps of points of view one was people who said capitalism is great i mean we got a goldman banker there we had a bunch of people from <laughs> finance and they're like look capitalism is the greatest thing the world's ever had like investments investing puts your marginal dollars as a society to the most productive use and is why we live with all the wealth and longevity and everything else we have. What I want is to be part of a movement that takes that great potential and steers it to more social purpose. And so there was a group who felt that the purpose of impact investing was to unlock more capital for impact. There was another group, and this tension has continued, who felt that that wasn't good enough. The purpose wasn't to keep the fund- the investing systems in place and just unlock more capital and steer it in this direction. It was to fundamentally change the way investing worked. And so the phrase impact investing has always tried to capture both people who are saying, let's keep the world the way it is, but unlock more capital for impact and people who want to fundamentally impact the way investing works. Um, I think many of us, including the Global Impact Investing Network, have um, they wouldn't use this phrase, but I would say have become radicalized over the last 13 (laughs) years. Uh, I'd say initially by climate change, which just has a sense of urgency and scale that leaves Mm -hmm. many people wondering if keeping the old ways of working in place works. Uh, and then more recently, a growing awareness that, you know, the hyper concentration of wealth after 09 and what's happened since then uh, in the U S more so U S and elsewhere, but certainly in other places um, has led a lot of us to, to question whether simply keeping the structures and the incentives in place, but unlocking a little bit of capital is enough and wondering if what we actually have to do is ask ourselves, why is it that this hyper capitalized, financialized society has led to this unacceptable level of economic inequality. So I'd say, you know what, there's been a radicalization the last few years and a sense of greater ambition. I think at the beginning, we were feeling like if we could, I at least felt that if we could unlock enough capital for housing and for clean water and for these other issues, agriculture, we could transform the lives of hundreds of millions of people. But now I think there's a a recognition that with the interest in impact investing really growing, can we set our sights higher? And can the sights we said really be not just about keeping the system in place and unlocking some money, but really fundamentally challenging the entire way investing works around this point that the purpose of all investments should be to recognize, internalize, and consider the social and environmental impact and not just the financial return. And going back to where we began this conversation, that is not a radical proposition. That is actually a conservative proposition because it's where, as I said, in most societies, capitalism used to be before the hyper-financialization of capital in the last century. And uh, one of the early people we had involved in the formation of the Goldman Sachs Investing Network is a third or fourth generation heir of a major industrial family in Europe. Uh, And I really appreciate what he said to me once. He said, you know, when I first heard you talk about impact investing, it reminded me of the way my grandfather talked about our family's wealth. Because when his grandfather Mm. was leading the family, they were industrialists who owned factories. Now, I got it. I don't want to by any means, romanticize what it must have been like from the worker's perspective, but at least from his perspective, the way his grandfather told the stories was that their obligation as a family was to run these factories profitably. And certainly they were very wealthy, but also because they were tied to places to build the schools and build the hospitals in the valleys where they ran those factories. And there was a sense that the purpose of the family was to do more than just make money. Uh, What he said was in the 60s and 70s, his father's generation were convinced by bankers and consultants to sell the family's assets because they weren't diversified enough. And instead to take all the money and then create a diversified portfolio. And so the work of being in the family went from running these factories with some sense of obligation to the community to basically running a family office whose purpose was to have diversified assets that generated risk return parameters on the frontier and completely, and they, you know, almost you can think about what psychologically you're now completely divorced mm-hmm. from what it to generate those returns. They simply become little, I talk about them like zeros and ones in a computer or ink on a paper. And that's your work. Uh, and so he said, when I heard you talking about impact investing and the idea that all in, that investments should not only pursue so- profit, but also social purpose. He said, it sounds, you sound much more like what the way my grandfather talked. And he said, I've come to realize that as impact investors, we're not the radicals. It was my father's generation who radically upended the way things worked." So again, I think it is just an, it is incredibly obvious as well as it's radical to say that the purpose of investing shouldn't just be to make money. Uh, I think it's an abstraction and, you know, obviously Milton Friedman most famously asserted this. um, But it's an ideological point of view. It serves a set of people and not other people. um, And it's not a rule that came to us from God. It is a way of thinking that we got socialized into in the last two generations. But again, I think as impact investors, it just makes much more sense that you don't just exist to make money and then think about how the world could be better with some other part of your life, or you make money and then you retire and join a nonprofit board. And so when I talk about impact investing, especially with younger people, it's intuitive. And it taps into something that people at the top business schools where, where I talk and elsewhere, they get that the idea that you somehow live this bifurcated life where you make money and then try and be a good citizen or you make money and then retire and try and do philanthropic work just intuitively is not as compelling as the idea that your work, your, your life in all of its complexity throughout your life should be pursuing both.
0: Mm-hmm. You you mentioned Milton Friedman and his shareholder primacy theory Back in 2018, Larry Fink, the head of BlackRock, the largest institutional investor in the world, famously wrote a letter to the Fortune 500 CEOs where he talked about long-term value creation as opposed to short-term quarterly earnings. Um, He talked about the need to have social impact in addition to, to financial returns. And then the following year, a couple hundred of those same CEOs, as part of the business roundtable announcement talked about stakeholder capitalism and and the move away from shareholder primacy. My question is, you know, it it seems easy to talk about that stuff in year nine of a bull market. (laughs) Now that there's a little bit more market volatility and uncertainty and, and, you know, economic contraction with the current pandemic, what are you seeing from those institutional players, from Mm -hmm. those corporations that were talking a a big game last year?
1: (laughs) It's funny, there's always... um I always talk about this and in impact investing, there's always haters and hypers. So, <laughs> and then the third category of doers I'll get to in a second, but you know, when, when whenever those letters come out, the haters say it's just words and mm-hmm. here's the latest shareholder resolution where they voted against some proposal with their own proxies to be better to the climate or be better on human rights. And it's always easy to do that. And then the hypers will say, look, it's proven we've won now. Larry Fink is saying impact investing is good. And the reality of course is never either of those extremes, it's always in the middle. And, and what I said about all these announcements is I happen to believe words matter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the, the coining of the phrase impact investing, it didn't change the world, but it helped create language that allowed people to come together in a different way and I think is able to help spur movement. Language really does matter. And so it matters that the Fortune 500 CEOs, at least many of them, uh, and Jamie Dimon famously as part of the Business Roundtable believe whether they believe in their hearts or not the fact that from even from a PR perspective They feel compelled to say these things Mm -hmm. is an important signal About what they are interpreting as the signals from the rest of us And what I say is that we can't declare victory because of what these guys say But what they say creates a greater opening and where this ends up for our society. It's on us not on them What those kinds of statements do is they create more space for those of us who are trying to do the work and push these guys to then be bolder in the work we can do. And so I think it's really not about us sitting back and saying, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs and the big institutional investors have all the power and we're just going to wait for them to do something. It's an interaction between what we want to see and, and what they do. And so to answer your question specifically about what happens in an economic crisis, you know, certainly our experience in 8 we launched the global impact investing network in the heart of the previous economic crisis. And I'd say there's sort of two things that, you know, the microeconomists talk about the substitution effect and the income effect. So uh, on one hand, when you you know, have less money, you're going to spend less money on something. On the other hand, when something's less valuable, there's a lower opportunity cost. And so you know, when people are in a downturn, you might retrench to old behavior and say, well, we, now we don't have time to spend on these new ideas. Uh, at the same time, when there's an economic downturn is when the old ways of thinking and working are not as lucrative. So we had anticipated, I'd say what we learned after 2009 was we had thought that the biggest financial crisis in two generations would lead more people to question what their investment advisors were telling them and what the mainstream investors had been doing and be more open to impact investments. That would be the substitution effect. The idea that, well, those guys telling us that they had all the answers and that this new way of thinking was crazy. The cost of being crazy is lower when the old answers aren't even making you money anyway. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there's the income effect, which is now we have less money and we're freaked out. So we're not going to try things new. And I think what we learned in last time was, the income effect took hold in the short term. So in the short term, it was much harder to get things going because people just weren't interested in trying to what appeared to them to be risky. Over a decade, though, what we've come to realize looking back is the substitution effect was happening underground. A lot of people, especially younger people, and a lot of younger inheritors who now are making decisions about their family's wealth, began at that time to just fundamentally question what they were being told around the orthodoxies related to investing, which is what I would have thought would happen when these orthodoxies have just cost you a quarter or thirty percent of your of your wealth, and so I think the same dynamic is going to be in play here. You've got to look at this with a longer term view. It could very well be that in the next six months, people are just scrambling and making excuses. But what kind of seeds are being sown for the long term? And then the other point that we really have to talk about is what's happening today and likely going to be happening next week when this goes live in the country. I mean, people are in the streets demanding racial justice and. I don't want to make the mistake to insert ourselves as impact investors into every cause. I think, as we said at the beginning of this talk, in some cases, you just need people to be politically mobilized, voting and solutions coming from government. But certainly, I think the same people are making these statements are aware of the fact that there is a lack of patience for the way our societies continue to manifest fundamental inequalities. And the especially the retail banks and the more retail oriented investment houses, they aren't divorced from what happens in, in the real economy. And so I think there, there's got to be conversations happening right now about the threat of inaction on these issues that comes from a mainstream financial institution, which is really the kind of the long tail, major disruptions. It's not this sort of, will our quarterly earnings go down by 2%? It's, will we fundamentally have a license to operate in a decade? If these street protests and the the disdain and the lack of patience for a system that is so oppressive leads to a more radical politics, which leads to a more hyper-regulatory government, I think these guys have got to be thinking about, in a generation, what's going to drive shareholder value for a large firm is not, do we win more market share this quarter? It's really two questions you got to ask yourself in 20 years. Do we have a license to operate or have we been socialized and nationalized by the government? And are our customers going to give us a license to operate or are we going to just be considered so? below the pale that they will find alternatives. And I think that's the savvy institutional investors, whether they care about the world or not, who think about long-term value in that way, have to be thinking in this terms. And this is where it's really helpful to have social movements because they do force people out of their comfort zones.
0: Yeah, this is this is obviously, you know, we're in the midst of a really challenging time with the the protests and um i think it started around the the inequities that were kind of laid bare by the 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 pandemic along racial and and in socioeconomic lines and then were exacerbated by the repeated extrajudicial killings that that we've seen and specific to the the, the pandemic you've done some great work with the nonprofit finance fund i i had um I had Kathy Clark on the show a, a couple months ago to talk about COVID CAP, her great website for entrepreneurs who are looking for funding. Um, and I asked her a question about the, the mobilization of capital and, and kind of how quickly it, it seemed to come together during this crisis. And, and she specifically mentioned the work that, that you're doing with the Ford Foundation in New York. I think it was like a $30 million COVID relief fund. Can, can you talk a little bit about, about how that came together?
1: Sure, that's great and I appreciate Kathy giving us a shout out and glad you were able to share what work she's doing. Um yeah, you know, the nonprofit finance fund the organization I lead as I mentioned, we were one of the first community finance institutions. We've been making loans since 1980, starting in New York and now across the country, and we lend to homeless shelters, soup kitchens, health clinics, charter schools, food banks, you know, nonprofit organizations who can use like anyone can. I mean, most nonprofits functionally are like small businesses. Um Whole another story about why we shouldn't make that comparison too simply, but they need loans. You know, they need to buy a building and they can pay it over years, just like we all do with our mortgages. They need working capital because often they are paid with extreme delays from their own funders, whether it's government or others. So we've been making these loans um, for many, many years, and so when the crisis hit, especially around social distancing and the immediate impact that that had on so many nonprofits, where almost overnight. In some cases, overnight, they had, in many cases, 70, 80, 90% of their revenues just disappeared, like what happened to many small businesses. I got a call from Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, who had been my boss at the Rockville Foundation when we got the impact investing work started. And he's been an amazing mentor to me and to countless other people. And he called me up and he said, you know, we're going to Ford, we're going to be a part of a multi-donor response for grant funding for nonprofits as part of an emergency. And there's more than 100 of them around the country now where donors have thankfully gotten together and said, let's pool our money to really create a, a stand-up, a quick emergency response to help these nonprofits survive. Uh, you know, And Darren said, based on some work we at the Nonprofit Sun had done in 2001 after 9-11 in Southern Manhattan, um, he said, "You know, I'd love for there to be a loan component to this. Do you think that lending could be a part of it? And again, I think it's so important as impact investors that we don't make the mistake of trying to put ourselves in places we can't be helpful. The truth is that in most cases, If you have suffered a loss because you've just had six months worth of revenues gone because of this crisis it's not appropriate to take a loan Mm -hmm. you really need a grant and we as a society have to figure out whether it's the private sector or the government how to get people grants that they need to cover those losses but at non-profit finance fund we believe strongly there's you can lend into delayed revenue you shouldn't try and lend into losses because you're just someone's lost half a million bucks you give them half a million dollar loan All you're doing is you're pushing the crisis of how to deal with that loss to whenever the bullet payment comes due on the loan. On the other hand, if you are a nonprofit that was expecting $500,000 in revenue from your annual gala from donors in April, and that's been delayed for a year, then it's really appropriate to take out a line. A working capital loan for $500,000 allows you to pay rent, pay your people. And then when you have the gala later on, you can pay back the investor. And so we worked with Darren quite quickly to figure out that There was a very clear investment thesis and an impact thesis around getting those nonprofits in New York City, in this case, who had experienced delayed revenues, the working capital they needed effectively to meet their current obligations, be able to maintain their organization, and then ultimately pay back when those delayed revenues come through. And you know, most most of the loans. So we, two things about this: we it's the second largest program related investment in the history of the Ford Foundation. They've been doing this for 51 years. It's twenty nine million dollars, and we got it done in nine days uh, from the first phone call with Darren until we had the money in the bank and had a website up. Where we're taking loan applications. We've now um, fully deployed the money. We ended up getting an additional $8 million from other foundations and a few private individuals. Uh, we've made 40 loans, and it's all out the door. Learned a lot about exactly the ways in which the crisis has affected these organizations. It's not just that classic, you had a gala and it got delayed. Um, a lot of the human services organizations, especially the soup kitchens, food banks, domestic violence shelters, primarily rely on government revenue. We knew that. And government is often quite notorious in handling its own financial crises by delaying the payments it is owing groups like these. And so a lot of what we've been able to do with that fund is provide loans to these nonprofits so that they can meet meet their obligations, pay staff, pay rent, pay vendors, while they're waiting for those contracts that have been delayed to get executed. I'll give you two quick examples. There's a group in Please. Brooklyn does an amazing program with uh, young people, um, supporting them after school, and they had just finalized an expansion into the Bronx. They are owed under a contract with the city for the work they've been doing. And they knew going into it that that contract would pay in arrears. In other words, they have to do the work, then they build the city, and then the city pays them back. So there's always a working capital challenge. In this case, as part of the bureaucracy, they can't get that payment until someone from a city agency has visited the new site in the Bronx. And that visit was scheduled like the week after social distancing started and that employee was considered non-essential. So they're stuck in this limbo where they simply cannot get paid on a contract for work they've done until that guy goes back to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we heard a lot of this. I mean, on one hand, I, I think that's actually quite willful and disrespectful from the city. We did hear in a lot of cases, people said, hey, the city's being great, they're doing what they can, but every contract is being renegotiated because people are saying, I know you're giving us a contract to do the following services, we can't do those. You, know, you had paid us to provide um, dinners to elderly people in our community center. Well, we shut the community center down. Now we're getting people to volunteer to take those foods and bags and drive them around town. Can we still get our contract and paid for it? And so the, the, the system is being overwhelmed by those kinds of requests. And so payments have been delayed throughout the system. And so that's the kind of thing where a loan is really appropriate because those guys will get paid back eventually. We also did another one that was, I think, really typical of what's going on. A group in Queens that had been created by an immigrant community um, to address domestic violence, which was stigmatized in the community, not talked about, and the services that existed weren't culturally appropriate or language appropriate. And so, 20, 30 years ago, members of that community got together and said, We're going to create a our own community's response to the domestic violence issue. We're going to shelter women and kids. We're going to destigmatize this, create services. And so, similarly, they're $2 million a year in revenue. $750,000 of that is one city contract. They've been delayed, hasn't been paid. In addition, the major funding they get from the private donors is from the local businesses from their community, most of whom are small businesses, and most of whom saw their revenues go to zero when social distancing ended. So they've got a group of funders who said, we will donate, we'll make our donations, we do every year, we love you guys, just give us an extra 12 months. You've got a city contract that's been delayed, and in the meantime, in the first month of social distancing, the volume of calls to their crisis call line doubled. So that is really typical where the crisis has created an even more compelling need for more of these services at the same time that the organizations are dealing with these financial challenges. And that's where impact investors can make a profound difference. I mean, leave aside everything I said at the beginning about, are we changing the world? Are we doing this? Just get a million dollars into the hands of someone who is doing this essential services in the community. And it's so inspiring to read what these organizations are doing, the the innovation, the commitment, the way they're responding, the way they in overnight retooled how they deliver services. But what they don't have is capital. And they typically don't have access to the to banks because banks are gonna typically, you know, lend to you if you've got real estate collateral or other assets. And so again, there's an equity issue of who gets access to the banking system and who doesn't. And as we learned through the work in New York and elsewhere, COVID was not equally affecting everyone. It turned out, and we should have seen this coming. You know, I'm, I'm embarrassed I didn't knowing what I know about the way this country works. It is the communities that are the poorest, the brownest, and the blackest. And in New York, also um, quite a bit affected the Asian community. But in general, there is a direct correlation of which communities are most affected and who continue to be marginalized from the mainstream banking system. And impact investors absolutely have to take as one of our callings to be investors who can provide capital to those groups who need it most and are most marginalized. If we're not doing that, then what are we doing? And so it's been a real honor to work with the Ford Foundation. And the other thing I'd say about this is it also, the crisis has taught all of us what we can do when we act with urgency. And I I certainly don't, don't want the crisis to linger or the suffering to continue, but I don't want to go back to the inertia that used to pervade not only foundation world, but too many impact investing conversations. Uh, The reality is is that impact investing, especially as an elite activity, funded by the richest people and managed by its most well-educated technocrats, tends to be a community that is not proximate to the social issues we are addressing. We don't do a good job of really holding ourselves accountable in real ways to the communities we serve. And, And because we have failed to do that, we too often operate without the urgency that is necessary to unlock the potential of this movement. There was a time, right, when this COVID crisis happened that impact investors and funders were operating with an amazing urgency, that I really hope we ask ourselves what we can do to hold on to it. Um, In order to get the second largest PRI in Ford's 51 year history in nine days, we had to do a set of things around the legal documentation that were not usual, but I I would look back on that experience. I don't think we did anything to compromise the integrity of the process to, I don't think we added risk for Ford or any other investors. Um but we got it done with urgency and so I really hope as impact investors, we hold on to that urgency because it's what's going to be necessary for us to be useful
0: I think you know a lot of these inequities that that have surfaced during this crisis but they're certainly not surprising the black or brown communities I, you know I think a lot of us in uh, the impact investing are probably not surprised but do, do you think that the society at large has do you think this has surfaced, these issues? Are we at an inflection point where there's at least an awareness about what's, what's happening? Yeah.
1: It's funny. I, I'm pretty cynical. Um, <laughs> you know, I have enough colleagues and, and other people who point out that it's real white privilege to act like this is a new crisis. Um, mm-hmm. well, we've had crises in these communities for, for decades. And what's new is the, the, the focus from, from white people, frankly. So I was pretty cynical until last night. And last night, I, uh, I saw the news about NASCAR holding a moment of silence for Black Lives Matter and uh, a bunch of drivers releasing a video. And I literally just turned to my wife and said, maybe this actually is different this time. So, you know, it is hopeful. Um, But again, I don't think it's appropriate for impact investors to wait and and engage what is happening. I think we have to be in the arena doing what we can to make it happen. And we can't just say, well, is this going to be a time when people in power and white people especially actually do something more than words? we've got to be able to model that ourselves, Uh, you know, and it it continues to be both incredibly hopeful around the traction that impact investing has gotten, and yet quite disillusioning the extent to which so many impact investors continue to perpetuate so much of the racial inequities that have gotten us in this problem in the first place. Too many portfolios that don't in any intentional way uh, put money into the hands with the real power of of black asset managers, too little accountability to the communities we serve, Um, you know, and frankly, too much attention on getting to announce bold initiatives rather than really making a fundamental difference. And so I think impact investors need to look inward and really ask ourselves what we are doing differently. And we absolutely have to stand in solidarity with people who are trying to change our political system, because I've always said impact investing is most effective when we recognize we are part of a broader need for social change. And we're least effective when we give in to what I think is a pretty strong libertarian streak within the impact investing community that says, I get to make a difference through my investments." because I don't want to be dealing with the messiness of government. Uh, and as long as we indulge that thinking, then um, I think we'll never realize our potential.
0: Is there anything that's giving you hope at the moment? Is there any uh, any cause for optimism? Is it Is it that w- what we were just talking about that, that maybe there's finally an awareness that has surfaced about some of these these issues that you've been fighting for for decades now?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's hopeful. But I also think we we make a mistake of ascribing agency to the wrong people. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, white people finally waking up or institutional investors, you know, I take less hope from what Larry Fink says than I do from people in the communities doing incredible work. So where I take my hope is from the clients of the Nonprofit Finance Fund, who are these amazing nonprofit leaders who are in their communities, from their communities, doing incredible work. And what is so clear when you work with them is they have the potential to drive the progress we all want to see in, in the world, what they don't have is resources because they have been systematically marginalized from access to those resources for decades and continue to be, even when the foundation world and, and donor and the investing world gives them resources, is with a lot of control. And so I take hope from the recognition that there is immense talent, commitment, passion in the communities that have been historically marginalized. All we need to do is, figure out how to channel resources to them in a way they get to control those resources and they will put the money to work in ways that's going to make the difference. And so I think it's recognizing that, you know, we as impact investors, we're allies, not activists. We are here to, to unlock potential that's already there. Um, that's our role. And to me, that's incredibly exciting because honestly, that should be relatively easy to solve. There is enough money in the world and there's enough incredibly effective, powerful activists who could put that money to work all we've got to do is is build the conduits that, that make the money flow to the right places. That's an easier challenge than saying we actually have to produce the money, which 100 years of hyper capitalism has done for us, or to say we have to somehow generate expertise in the communities that doesn't exist. It's there. We just have to do our role to to work in allies as people who bring the resources um, and then step back from the need to control those resources in order to unlock that potential. So that's where I get my hope from. Uh, on a daily basis, it's it's hard at a macro level, when you look back, it can be despairing. But certainly when you just look at someone face to face and recognize what the potential they have, that's where I take my hope.
0: That's great perspective. Thank you so much for for taking the time and and for everything you've you've done to move this field forward. I probably wouldn't be sitting here on the other side of the mic if it wasn't for <laughs> wasn't for you. So I appreciate that.
1: That's great. That's great to hear. It's it's always very humbling to realize that people come to me and say, you know, I wrote my undergraduate thesis on impact investing. <laughs> and I think it's amazing to think that that wasn't even possible. You know, as I said earlier, I would be in a very different place probably if I had come to the recognition earlier that we really can harness the best of the investing world and the social justice world and, and put them together to really make change rather than limiting what we can do together because we hold each other with mutual skepticism and disdain. I think really it's it's a time to, to overcome that in, in purpose of, of making the changes we need in the world.
0: It's a great note to end on. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Money and Meaning. I hope you enjoyed the depth of Anthony's knowledge when it comes to the history and evolution of the field. If you found the conversation fascinating, we ask you to share it with a friend or two who you think would enjoy it and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. As always, if you want to learn more about the topics discussed, we'll post a blog at our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net, where we link to additional resources related to the nonprofit finance fund, their COVID response fund, and other things that came up during the course of the conversation. If you wanna get in touch with me, you can reach me at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com or on social media at the handle at socapmarkets. We'll be back in two weeks with our 50th episode, which will feature Rahana Nathu of Spectrum Impact.